Welcome. Welcome, lovely listeners, to another episode of the Soccer Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Turner, and joining me in our studios in Southern Illinois is a man not afraid to do a podcast in his goalkeeper pants, producer Mason. Look, it's the smart... When the weather's like that, you gotta come prepared. That's right. (laughs) And joining us from an undisclosed cave in the St. Louis uh, metropolitan area is a man like Tom Brady, who will only announce his retirement on his own terms. It's Sean Campbell. Hey, the only other thing that I have in common with that man is the fact that the weather right now is going to be snowy, and that's that's it. That's it. I'm I'm working in the snow and the rain, and I will only retire when I say I retire. (laughs) Yeah, the the weather outside will be frightful when you listen to this, more than likely on a Wednesday afternoon, if not in the morning. Uh, But it won't be as frightful as it will tomorrow night in Minneapolis for the U.S. men's national team's World Cup qualifier hosting Honduras. Of course, that famous cold weather club. Uh, Players won't mind that are playing because they'll be running around. The ones on the sidelines will be a little chilly. The fans in the stands might lose extremities on that, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. I want to thank you all for listening, and while you're here, if you haven't already, please go ahead and just hit that subscribe button on your podcaster of choice, and just take a quick moment to rate and review the show. It really helps us out, and we really appreciate it. Also, we encourage you all to reach out with any questions or comments. You can catch us at soccercapital at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at soccercapital. You know the drill. Yeah, you know the drill. Got a big show. Got a big show for you this week. And we do have some, well, sort of breaking St. Louis City SC news. They've signed a player. Looks like a player for the first team. It's not a big signing. Well, I guess we'll see how he plays. They signed Bosnian, 23-year-old left back, Selmir Pedro. Comes over, has been playing the last four years for FK Sarajevo in the Bosnian League. Uh, He has signed an MLS professional contract. This was officially announced today by the club. Uh, He will join the club in July of 2022 after the uh, conclusion of the Bosnian season, I assume. Uh, He is signed through 2025. He has two caps for the Bosnian national team, uh, the senior team, including uh, he was in that Bosnian friendly against the U.S. on December 18th. He also was, for years, involved from the U-17 starting in 2014 uh, with the youth uh, international team for Bosnia. So he debuted with FK Sarajevo in 2018. He's only 23 years old. He's already got four years of professional experience on the league. And uh, uh, sporting director Lutz Feinensteel describes him as a very hardworking player that fits well in our style of play. He is a young player with significant experience. Uh, Terms were not disclosed. I've heard rumors about a $300,000 signing. Not a big splash. Uh, Alessandro Soli, Soli that they uh, signed as a scout, is well known for working in the Balkans and in Greece, and that's probably part of him being signed as the first scout as well, I imagine. Really don't know anything about the player. Uh, Apparently, you know, he's played professionally for four years. They've seen something they want. They think he can contribute. I don't think we're looking at a linchpin of the program. But hey, you never know. 
He could come in and really be good. And I mean, this is a big signing if for no other reason than it's the first signing of the club. Yeah. Usually it's a bigger one, but sometimes you just catch them as they fall. Yeah. Uh, supposedly they looked at him quite a bit, were kind of high on him, so they went ahead and locked it up. And now we have a player we can, uh, we can attach ourselves to. And that is Selmir Pedro. Yes, that's a Bosnian name, not Spanish. It sure does sound like a Spanish name to me. <laughs> so a big signing for the Bosnian community in St. Louis. And uh, apparently the Bosnian connection coming out of St. Louis had a bit to do with this signing as well, from what I hear. That's not surprising. I do like the idea that you posited, though, that Spain is part of greater Bosnia. <laughs> they do not share a common language, though. Even if his name sounds like it. There is no there is no Europe, only Bosnia. Uh, there is no Europe, in the Balkans Bosnia. discourse. And I'm we know get how more... well that turns out in, yeah. in uh, world history. We're going to get called slug people for di- for denying the great country of Albania its true birthright of, I have to re- of, of, of Western Europe. I'll just have to remind my chauffeur not to make a, a unplanned left turn on the way home. <laughs> yes. Wait, you get a chauffeur? I... Where's that in my contract? <laughs> With what he's referring to, you don't want one. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> that's how you no, end up I know in exactly what's books. going on yeah. here. Let's move away from uh, world encompassing wars and talk about something perhaps even more uh, disastrous. MLS Next Pro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Absolute winner of a segue there. <laughs> They did release. Oh, he went there. <laughs> they did release their roster rules. The ones that were reported uh, in the athletic, uh, what about three weeks ago? We talked about them. Uh, pretty much exactly the same. A little bit more clarification, uh, but not a whole lot. Uh, one uh, thing of note is amateur status for amateur players in this developmental league. It forbids any player to that has competed in any college program from being signed on as an amateur status player in this league. So you won't be seeing any of your slew players, uh, you know, coming out for the summer to play in this developmental league, unless they go ahead and sign a professional contract. I do find this interesting, though. I wonder how they came to this conclusion, because the NCAA's thing has always been that that their athletes are amateurs. So... Uh. There's probably some talk and just not wanting to confuse the issue of amateur status and college athlete athletes. Also, you got the uh, the seasons. We assume since we don't have a schedule yet, um, will overlap. It's probably not really anything's going to take an active college player unless the team wants to sign them to a professional contract and they're willing to leave college to join a, a basically third tier developmental league. Could happen, but uh, I don't think it really going to apply to big colleges. It might apply to some smaller colleges with a talented player uh, just looking for an opportunity to get a higher profile on the scene for MLS. Might have a better opportunity going this route than staying in a college that doesn't really draw a lot of attention. You know what? I'm thinking about this. I I wonder if the reason why they are uh, not allowing amateur status like this is so that they don't dilute um, the uh, generation Adidas in the Super Draft. That could be. Uh, but on the other hand, generation Adidas players sign an MLS contract for higher than minimum 
higher than most other draftees, and they're guaranteed that contract. So you're probably not going to see generation Adidas players passing up the possibility for that to turn professional in MLS Next Pro. Now, once they do get drafted as generation Adidas, they could play in here, but they'll already be professional players under contract. I'm thinking more it's um to keep like the potential generation Adidas player pool from from being diluted. Nah, it could be. It's probably it's probably a combination of all those things. Probably why it's so late is them going back and forth trying to figure out the minutia of these details, which they hopefully want to get right, and that's the reason for the delay. We hope to assume. Or at least straightening out the machinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the league starts, still not sure. Uh, as far as I could tell, there is a roster compliance date for all the teams, the 21 teams in MLS Next Pro. They need to make sure they've got all of their players in the right slots by March 18th of this year. Uh, there will be a roster freeze date. That's not disclosed. But I probably have an idea when that is because the primary transfer window for this league it's February 10th to May 4th. So after May 4th is going to be the roster freeze. And what that means is once they get a freeze date, you can't make changes to the roster until after the end of the season. There'll also be a secondary transfer window, July 7th to August 4th. How that fits in a roster freeze, I don't know. I was about to say that seems like uh, if that's the case, then that seems very short for to play a season. If anyone out there has any ideas, go ahead and hit us up at Soccer Capital on Twitter or at SoccerCapital at gmail.com. We'd love to hear if you have any insights on that. Get your tinfoil hats on, folks. It's time for conspiracies about MLS <laughs> Next Pro. <laughs> oh, got a lot. Got a lot. Well, that's what happens when we don't get any actual concrete information. Yeah, you open the door to all sorts of crazy ideas. Uh, starting to get a little late, but at least we got some information and it comes out basically about 10 days before things actually start happening with the league. Uh, you know, teams are already in training camp. There's more going on. We're just not hearing about it. And probably because we're an expansion team, we probably care a whole lot more than most of the other teams in the league. Rochester FC might want to know more. Maybe they're getting more. We don't know. Haven't been following them as closely as perhaps I should. And that's about all the news I have. One other thing, a note uh, going over MLS and St. Louis City SC. There will be MLS games starting this month. We're, again, recording late on Tuesday afternoon, 4 p.m. It is February 1st as we record. On, what is it, the 28th, I believe, is the first game of the MLS season. So we're about four weeks away from the start of play. And that leads the lead-in into... St. Louis City starting play. We're under a year now, or well, 13 months under till the first game. Uh, it's going to get crunch time before we know it on all this. Now it's time to shift up gears a little bit. It's uh, World Cup qualifying time, and that's going to be a big deal come November, December of this year in Qatar for the World Cup finals uh, being played. And uh, USMNT's in World Cup qualifying, the windows open, and they played, when was it, Thursday night against El Salvador. They did get a 1-0 win over El Salvador at home in Columbus. 
Everybody's afraid of the winter weather in Columbus. It is about 30 degrees. Everybody said it wasn't bad. Uh, U.S. really dominated this game. Just couldn't put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, Their expected goals was something like seven times that of El Salvador. El Salvador, on the other hand, did play very well. And uh, kudos to former USMNT player Hugo Perez coaching them. Uh, Their record in qualifying isn't that good, but they play tight discipline without a whole lot of talent on their team right now. A team that used to be much better than they have been lately. They seem to be on the upswing. Just not going to happen for them in this cycle. As uh, they're, I don't think they're officially out, but they're not going to the World Cup. Sure doesn't seem like it. Um, Anthony, or I should say he wants to be called Jedi Robinson, uh, had the lone goal in this one. There were so many opportunities to score goals. Again, as we've seen, and we'll see again, uh, the final ball into the person in the, with the opportunity to score was not that great. Uh, on the other hand, Jesus Ferreira did some really good things, but he scuffed the best chance of the game, probably even better than uh, Robinson's goal, and he skied it over the net. Again, problems up in front, in front of the net, just plagued the U.S. and have ever since uh, Josie Altador uh, was on the squad. We had Ricardo Pepe and Daryl DK for a moment, but they haven't followed up with anything sustained. So that put the U.S. in good stead. They kept the three points at home. Uh, everything's going well. Uh, Panama took a loss, so the U.S. jumped ahead of them. Heading into the big anticipated matchup, and Hamilton, Ontario against Canada. Canada, of course, topping the uh, charts. They were, I believe, a point ahead of the U.S. coming into this game. And... Clearly two of the three best and most talented teams. Tal- uh, Canada has a lot, a lot of talent on that team. So going into this game, we're not going to give you a play-by-play of this. Uh, one particular play we want to break down. But uh, basically the U.S., as you probably heard, they took it on the chin. Lost 2-0 to Canada in this one. A pretty, some really called it an embarrassment. NBC Sports called it a humiliating game. really wasn't humiliating. It just was kind of sad on that. Uh, the game all hinged very early on in what was it, seventh or eighth minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's on Matt Turner, rumored to be going to Arsenal. He got a goal kick. Of course, the ball was, it was cold there. It had a frozen ball early in the game before it got warmed up. He went to take a goal kick. It didn't look like his defensive backs were expecting it. He didn't wave them forward and left them sitting out to get the uh, play out of the back pass. So they're spread out wide. So he kicks it upfield. It's a weak kick, about 15 yards short of Giassi Zardes, goes straight to Canada, and then they are ruthless on the attack. Jonathan David and then Kyle Lahren tore him apart. U.S. is all tour power, weren't in position, weren't expecting this play. Uh, Miles Robinson slips. Laren was just a lethal blow with hardly any notice. He did a perfect shot. Turner couldn't even dive. And immediately the U.S. is down 1-0. And from there, Canada was able to play upon their uh, very tight and disciplined defensive formation and really made it difficult for the U.S. to do anything in the attack. Granted, 
I wouldn't say Canada bunkered, but Canada couldn't get past the U.S.'s defense either. They were pretty toothless in the attack uh, until the last 10 seconds of the match. Uh, but that really was what changed the game. Canada getting that goal changed everything. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Um, we're going to talk a lot about like the the mistakes that the U.S. made on this play, but one thing I want to say is that this was a great sequence from Canada. Like he, uh, I don't remember which player it was that received it, but he gets it. It's it's two touches to Laren, and then he's off to the races. Yeah, and he just a uh, no no lead up to his shot. Just shot it. Turner was standing still, perhaps wrong footed. I don't think he had a chance anyway. Though on TV it looked like he could have, but I think the shot was just too good. Looking back on it again, just a. Not a lot of errors. The biggest one was the goal kick without waving the defensive backs forward to get in position. So they were wide open in the back. Then the kick's very short. It's a short path to goal. It's what happens. Yeah, he just kicked it without a real, like without a real intended target. And no, I think he was kicking it for Zardes, but he was short by fifteen yards. If that was for Zardes, then then that really bunged that one up. Greg Velasquez on Scuffed, I believe, recalled uh, referred to it as the rock ball, the frozen ball. He went to kick it, and it you know went off like he's kicking a boulder. On that, one thing that needs to be noted though is even if Turner kicked that one short, who wasn't marking their guy and let him get to it? I mean. That's one of the big things you have to be able to do is on a goal kick. Even if the even if now with the strategy that you've got your two wing your two backs sitting on the either side of the box, you've got to have somebody up in the midfield, short, long, middle, and long to get the air first win the header, win the ball in the air, and then have someone backing them up to get that second ball. Winning the winning the air battle and then the second ball is crucial on any free kick from deep, whether it's whether it's, you know, even if you're pushing for goal or if it's coming from your own back end, you have to be able to win it in the air. And if you can't, then you have to win that second ball. Not playing second balls was a problem for the U.S. all throughout this game. They never tuned that one up. They weren't terrible, but they didn't win the second balls overall. It was close, but they weren't terrible. Uh, the scramble off of the second ball, uh, the defensive backs out of position, and then Miles Robinson falling down. That really was what left Laren the ability to have that clean shot. And it was just a chaotic play. Really kind of a fluke play. And uh, you can also look at it this way. Walker Zimmerman has been very good about snuffing out these chances and getting him, you know, smelling this and getting back into position. Miles Robinson wasn't particularly good in this game overall, though he wasn't tested much after this, to be quite honest. Uh but Zimmerman was held out as a precaution, had a little twing in his hamstring, so he didn't play in this game. Uh, Chris Richards and Miles Robinson started in the uh, center back positions. And you just wonder. But on the other hand, there it, it really did also look like the U.S. was expecting it for a back pat. You know, play it out of the back, and Turner goes with the goal kick and kind of had the U.S. like stunned. And then the follow-up. Robinson trying to get in position, scrambling, falls down on the frozen AstroTurf at Tim Horton's field. And uh, that's pretty much the goal. We've seen these a couple of times from this team. And again, something to remind everyone, this team is incredibly young, unprecedentedly young from top to bottom for an international squad of this stature. 
with real hopes of making the final 16 at least of the World Cup, no one would ever put out a team of 18, 19, 20 to 23-year-olds olds dominating the lineup. It's just unheard of. Unless it's England. <laughs> yeah. Unless it's England beating Germany down 5-1. to one. <laughs> It happens. But uh, they're not really doing that. They do have veterans. They didn't lose an entire generation to where they don't have anybody with like 80 caps just a few years older to give them veteran leadership. Canada has that. And really, that showed in this game. You got Milan Bourjan, who, as a goalkeeper, even in his goalkeeper pants, uh, really was firing up the team. You've got, you know, some other players that have been through this, been through when Canada was playing against Honduras and got beat 8-1 to snuff out their hopes of going anywhere in the past. Uh, Just some terrible games by Canada. They're on a roll. They're underdogs. They're not feeling any pressure. They're having a lot of fun. And with Kyle Aaron and Jonathan David up front, they got the two best attackers, maybe two of the three, if you count Raul Jimenez of Mexico when he plays. And they have the best player in CONCACAF and Alfonso Davies. So they've got three players right there in important positions. They're bearing what the U.S. have. And that's something else. Uh, everybody says they're not getting the most out of this U.S. talent. Youth showing itself to be a problem. Uh, they get frustrated very easily and kind of lose composure. We saw that in this game. They're getting better at it, but they still got a lot of experience to go. Uh, but the talent the U.S. has, it's the best talent the U.S. has ever had uh, overall, top to bottom. But you put it out there against the rest of the world, it's not overwhelming talent. This is not the best young generation in the world. They're pretty good. But uh, other than uh, Weston McKinney, and for what he does, uh, Tyler Adams, Timothy Way is playing pretty well right now too, but nobody else is really in form for their club. Nobody's tearing it up internationally over in Europe. MLS guys are out of season. That kind of showed... Uh, Ariola and Morris came in. They had a lot of good ideas, just not sharp enough to get that final pass. At least they tried. Uh, the big story of this game is in the first half, especially U.S. was dominating the ball. Uh, Canada was physical. They came to play, perhaps came to play more than the U.S. That's what you expect for a home team, though. Keep that in mind. And, um, but the U.S. had the ball and Burhalter after the game, says it was a dominant performance. I think he's protecting his players a little bit, maybe trying to boost their confidence. But they didn't play poorly until they got to the final third and tried to get into an attack. Then it was terrible. Crosses that just did to people's legs, losing the ball out of bounds, uh, misdirected passes. You get times where people attack space, nobody runs with them. So you can sit there and watch them. They're trying to find somebody, so they just run the ball in the corner. A lot of that thing's going on, especially in the first half. Didn't get much better in the second. Honestly, building off that a little bit, I think that's almost a bigger problem than trying to figure out who is going to be our target guy and our number nine. Because we've got plenty of guys that are have shown to be clinical in front of goal at times and been able to be that striker. But I think our biggest problem at this point in time is actually getting that final ball in, not, not, not having the problem is not that we don't have people to target granted. They're not getting into the space, but it's a bigger problem when you're not getting a good final ball in, when you're not getting those balls in and not, you know, you don't have that decision making on the wing. That's 
as good. So you're getting bad balls in, and even when it gets towards someone that is, you know, when it, when they put a ball in towards Pepe, it's not right. It's not in stride. It's not weighted right. So that's just as important in my book for us to fix as it is to try to find that number nine. Um, it's getting that good ball in and then letting the mixer do its job. Yeah, the the most obvious and glaring issue is the lack of service. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, a lot of people blame Zardes. That the ball wasn't even coming to him. He's running around trying to find it. Another big thing that we saw in this game was the U.S. did so well in between the boxes, in the middle of the field. They could stretch Canada there, and they did. They'd find themselves in space. Canada started off the game, found themselves in space, and they attacked ruthlessly at that space to go to goal. The U.S. didn't. Uh, nobody's running into that space. You see people like uh, Tyler Adams, been in the Red Bull system his entire life. That's what they preach. He didn't do that on a couple of occasions. Pulisic was doing this. McKinney was attacking space and was pretty good, though, at times. And crucially, when it came down to make the final pass, he got sloppy, lost the ball. Uh, The crosses from Dest was very good on defense, had a pretty good game. But the crosses from him and Robinson just weren't very good. Uh, they just missed their mark. It's hard to blame the front guy, the striker, if you just don't get him the ball. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lewandowski, there's a few other ones that maybe go get the ball. But even they starved to service. They can get pretty frustrated. The only thing is they only need the ball once in spots they put it in. We don't have anybody like that. Canada has two. And they got one ball in space, and they scored a goal. We got, what, one ball in space, and that was left for Paul Areola at the end to uh, give an admirable job on an overhead kick that came a lot closer than it should have on it. But that's like the only time we ever had a shot in space, and he's doing a bicycle kick in the box. It's almost snapped his neck doing it. Yeah. But, <laughs> hey, at least it looked cool, right? Yeah, he was off target. I did think it was, and I see the replay from a better angle. It's like, he didn't miss that by much, actually. Uh, but didn't go in. Yeah, he still missed. <laughs> uh, set pieces, still not having trouble scoring, though actually the best chance the U.S. had in this game was off a set piece. Uh, a lot of people on Twitter complaining about Christian Pulisic doing corners and how bad he's been. <laughs> Apparently, they just completely forgot how bad Acosta and some of the other ones were Bello doing the corner kicks, so it were just atrocious. Uh, but Pulisic has been pretty good. He's getting it near uh, better. Need to really work on it. But he got a great one into Weston McKinney, open in the box. He gets the header on, straight into goal. You think it's going in, and Milan Bourjan makes a nice save. It's kind of right at him. Uh, but uh, still, from where it was, point. You expect it to go in as a really nice save. And really, if that goal goes in, the whole game would have turned. It could have turned drastically. How? Don't know. Canada unleashes themselves on offense. But they were they were struggling and sloppy with the ball as well. And they were turning it into a scrum, which they should have. And it was effective for them. But the U.S. gets that goal. The whole thing changes. They get Even if it's a draw, the whole narrative of this game changes. I think. Mm-hmm. 
But a big thing that you could see in this game was the attitude of the players on the pitch. Canada came out from the start. They were aggressive. They were always in the U.S.'s face. They were pushing. They were doing things. They were uh, getting CONCACAF. Don't know how that plays into it. They wasted a lot of time in the second half. They were playing their advantage. They were physical. Now, the U.S. did not fall down on that physical play. They were also aggressive and in the face of the Canadians, except the Canadians had that early goal advantage. Then they could bunker down. We never really saw them do anything offensively. Even if they got out, it was pretty much snuffed out. So... Berhalter said it was a really good performance. I don't know if it's a really... It's hard to take away that attack in a final third. Just don't know what's going on there in the attack. They just seem so slow, ponderous, timid. Matt Doyle had a good take uh, today in his armchair analyst that they're playing positional play like Manchester City, where everybody has sort of their zone on the field. They get the ball or they find space and they attack it. And it seems like the players are right now in the mindset of, you know, making sure they do the positional play rather than actual doing the play of the game of soccer. Which can be understandable given the youth and uh, inexperience in learning the system. Not all of them play in that system. Some of them do. Uh, But there's just a seemingly lack of confidence in the U.S., you know, you're seeing players that never pass the ball back. Her people say they have to be coached. Why are they doing it here? Anybody seen Burhalter coach, they never pass the ball back. They were always pushing an attack. Uh, and trying to do something to give Kai Kamara or uh, Ola Kamara or Giassi Zardes tap-ins so they could score 20 goals a year. That was the whole purpose of what Columbus did. They did it pretty well. A couple of things that could really change this, though, especially one big one. We haven't seen Gio Reyna since, what, the first window? He's got a little attitude on the field. He hasn't played for club or country since September. And Christian Pulisic is not being, he's not being forward with the ball. He's not playing well against El Salvador. Many times he was coming into the middle when he should have been out of the wing and kind of clogged things up, uh, really costing chances for the U.S. He's just not playing well for club or country at all. And uh, their focus, it seems like the U.S. is looking for him to do something, and the other teams are just taking him out, kicking him, marking three guys on him. Should open up something for somebody else, but it's not. And there doesn't seem to be the work rate to get open or get into space or press advantage. One thing they did get in Mexico, when they had that space, they attacked like mad. So can it come down to the fact that the players just aren't getting up for El Salvador and Panama, and even to an extent Canada, where they're at? But against Mexico, they came out and really performed like we've never seen a U.S. team that I can remember perform against Mexico. So it's something to keep an eye on. And this also speaks to their youth and a lack of of veteran leadership on the field to rally them together. Yeah, I I definitely have to agree with that. I think a lot of this is actually just the young players showing the fact that they're young players at this point. Um, they're trying to to not screw up, and in not trying to not screw up, they end up doing things that end up becoming mistakes or not playing properly. Um, 
So it's it, and I've said this before. It's almost like they're trying too much, and they're at times, and at other times, they're trying to just minimize the mistakes instead of playing the game that they know that they can play, while also trying to learn how to trust in the other players that they don't play with. It, it so part of it could still be that they're trying to gel as a team, and as we've mentioned before, this was what the third time ever that we had Pulisic, McKinney, and Adams all three starting at the same time. Um, it's the first time with Musa included in that, maybe Dest. First right. time ever. That that could be part of it. it. And we've seen that in a lot of other... I've seen it in a lot of other sports and a lot of other games. Um, a specific uh, trophy-winning campaign in this city comes to mind. Um, you bring in a bunch of guys that are supposed to be good players, and all of a sudden they just they, they look like hot garbage on ice and all of a sudden they're holding the greatest sports trophy of all time outside of maybe the world cup and i'm not saying that that's going to happen here but it could just be a a concept of maybe these players need more time to actually work together and they're starting to figure things out there's also kind of the thought that with this you know burhalter got this job and back up especially if you haven't been following the u.s men's national team for many years he got this job on the promise to make the U.S. play world-class soccer with intricate attacking movement, things like that, instead of what they were used to, 4-4-2 bunker, uh, get out on the counterattack, just make it very hard on the other team and have just enough talent to rely on upon a couple of moments uh, when they get the opportunity. Uh, Bob Bradley had an incredible success uh, with the U.S. in 2010, 2009, in his tenure. Uh, but everybody got tired of that. They said they wanted, why can't we play more like everybody else? So that's why they brought in Jurgen Klinsmann. Klinsmann promised the same things and almost immediately reverted back to the same way of playing that had always been there, probably because he didn't have the talent to do that. Now it looks like we've developed some of that talent. We're lacking some veteran leadership out there, it shows. But there's something to be said when you bring all these guys in and you start this, is there seems to be a lot of freedom in their movement. Pulisic especially seems to have the run of the field to play. And other players are running and doing things. Maybe they're doing that too much. Uh, when Pulisic was out and you had Aronson and Wea or Wea and Areola, they stick more to what they were doing, where they're supposed to be. And it seemed like the attack flowed more freely. Maybe just because... The other players, not knowing, having played with them all that much, could anticipate where they were going to be. When you have a more free-flowing attack and the players can improvise, you don't always know. And maybe that timidity that we see in the attack is uh, has a lot to do with the, they look up and the guy's not where they're expecting them to be. They're going for the U.S. Army approach, which is if we if even we don't know our, what our doctrine is, then they can never expect what we're doing. It's not working in this case. <laughs> now, all in all, it's sad defeat, not humiliating. The U.S. was so much better than they were in the draw in Nashville earlier in the cycle against Canada. When Canada just bunkered from the get go and U.S. had nothing, I just passed the ball around for 90 minutes. This was much better. But still not device it. It's still the quality of balls in the box is really where the failings are coming. They're just not good passes, good service into the box. And then when it gets there, 
guys aren't making their chances. Okay, that's enough kvetching about the Canada game. Uh, one last thing on it, though. Congratulations to Canada. They are they are absolutely, in World Cup qualifying, the best team in CONCACAF. They're just outclassing everyone. Uh, uh, look at the standings, we'll tell you. Uh, they top the, they've got the most goals, 17 goals for, 5 against, a goal differential of 12, blowing everybody away. Everybody's complaining about the U.S. with a tremendously poor goals per game per match uh, average. Actually, not bad. They're, they're 1.3. Well, actually, that's not good. But in the contest of CONCACAF, it's exactly the same as Mexico. And we have a, we're ahead of them on goal differential. Panama's slightly ahead. They've got 14 goals in um, 10 games. But their goal differential is only two. No one else is even close. So goals are hard to come by in CONCACAF qualifying this time around. And it kind of shows uh, where the scoring, the teams that could score goals are the ones at the top. <laughs> Which I know is shocking to everyone, but... <laughs> well, there was the one time in the Euros where Greece didn't allow any goals and didn't score any and they won the Euros, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> uh, I, this, I know this is a really hot take uh, from... Uh from a sports pundit, but um, I do think that the team that scores more points should win. Sports yeah. ball! <laughs> Unless it's a draw. And nobody wins. Unless it gets you qualified for the World Cup. <laughs> then it's a win. But uh, good for Canada. So many bad years. So many times trying to get closer as they got the young talent in and just falling apart terribly. They're finally getting it all together. And CONCACAF U.S., Mexico could really use Canada to flex some of their muscle of, you know, population and GDP and all their abilities to put things together to become better. More competition, the better you become. Good for them. Plus, maybe them winning made Neil Young happier after a week of fighting with Spotify and Joe Rogan. Though I think he was very happy with the fight, to be quite honest. But uh, let's move on. Uh, this is podcast. This episode will uh, be out on Wednesday, the day of the uh, final qualifying matches of this window. And the U.S. will host Honduras in balmy, sweaty Minneapolis. Game time temperature anticipated to be four degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I don't have the math on what it is Celsius. You probably don't want to know. <laughs> Probably closer to the wind chill factor, which is going to be like minus 11. Good game to sit in the stands and pay your $90 for a ticket and travel there by plane to get there. Taking a tropical cruise to uh, sunny Minneapolis with uh, you and 22,000 of your closest friends. Yeah, at least they won't get the ice and snow that we will for that game. That could make it even worse. But uh game's going to go on as planned as far as we know until somebody steps in and says, no. But it's actually, this is a bigger game and always was planned to be more important than the Canada game in the broad spectrum of qualifying because you want to get the three points at home. There was moments in that uh, Canada match Tyler Adams is playing. He could have gone in for a ball, maybe stole it. He didn't get himself stuck in because he could get a second yellow card and be out for the Honduras game. Walker Zimmerman was held out. The Honduras game is so important, and it even is now. You were hoping to get at least a point in Canada, then make it easier. You didn't. 
now you really have to win this game. And Honduras is the worst team in CONCACAF qualifying. But they're dangerous on the counter. So you got to be prepared for that. Yeah, and then, you know, Tyler Adams trying to not get yellow card accumulation, and then he went and got himself hurt. Yeah, he's out. Hamstring injury. Chris Richards got the start because Zimmerman was out. Chris Richard possibly broke his foot. Not just out for this game. He could be out for the, you know, maybe through the March window on that. Uh, And we still don't have a word on Walker Zimmerman if he's going to be able to play. It could be Miles Robinson for the third game in a row, which isn't really a problem for a center back with Mark McKenzie. There's no John Brooks on the roster. Looks bad in hindsight. From all I hear, if you're not starting Brooks and he lost his job, pure and simple to Robinson and Zimmerman, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy you fly across the Atlanta to sit on the ben- uh, Atlantic to sit on the bench for three games if he's not going to play. The football gods have been angered because we counted out touchdown, Tom. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Enough with the with the with the wrong kind of football. Stop talking hand egg. We're about the ball that you actually kick with your foot. All of the game. And the one thing you have to say about the game being played in Minneapolis, it'll be cold as heck. But the round ball will roll straight as opposed to say the field in Honduras, where it wouldn't, even though the temperature be nice. Uh but that's neither here nor there. I have accidentally built my footballs, my football field on a side of the hill. <laughs> okay, enough of this silliness. Let's talk about what we want to see happen in this Honduras game. It's the same things we always want to see. Start fast. Get out and play and attack. Don't be lazy and sleepy. Happen again against Canada. Uh... Get them down and never let the pressure up, though you got to be aware of uh, Albert Elise, Kyoto, uh, and their attack, their forwards can kill you on the counterattack. But the U.S. has been very good about that and covering for that. Hasn't been a problem for the U.S. in these cycles at all, defending that. They got to move the ball quicker. No more holding on the ball and making slow passes. Go after it. And when you get open space, attack, attack, attack. That's what they did in that second half against Honduras when they destroyed them with four goals in the second half. Do it from the start. That was another game where they were asleep and gave up an early goal and slept walked through the first half. It's got to happen. I mean, like, what do we want to see? Basically the exact opposite of what we saw on Saturday. But a big part of that is like, you know, well, coming out of the gates fast. We haven't done that very much. We've always been a second-half-heavy team this whole qualifying. I don't think we've done it at all. Yeah. I don't recall us ever really coming out of the gates. Well, we might be full of uh, sound and fury. Nothing ever came of it, and then there'd be the lull, and they'd limp on into halftime. And then they come out after the half and score in the next five minutes. We've seen that a lot. Last summer, we saw a little bit more of it in the yes. in um, the Gold Cup and those competitions, but not in World Cup qualifying. We It's been second half, like all about the second half. And it's, it's starting to not work out anymore. <laughs> but most of all, I don't care how they look, how they play, get three points. Have to have three points against the worst team in CONCACAF qualifying at home. Have to. To get the three points. Especially now. You come out of this with three points. U.S. with Panama at home. 
Panama is going to be playing Wednesday night at Mexico. Canada has to go down to Costa Rica. And when the Canada Canada had that draw against the U.S. that they were celebrating, I don't remember where they went to play, but they were on the road and they had a really bad performance and got a draw out of it. One thing they're doing better than everybody else. But there's a real chance for the U.S. to get three points and kind of get some more points out of this. So if uh, Mexico can get themselves together... They're actually having more of a crisis in their team and their attack right now in the U.S. If they can hold off Panama, that just gives a little distance for the automatic qualifying. I have to play that uh, that playoff against Oceania, which everybody's certain is going to be New Zealand. Anything else to share about the U.S. men's national team and World Cup qualifying, guys? One last little tidbit of information. Uh, it was announced... Over the weekend, the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame class, and in it were a couple of big names we might all recognize. Uh, Clint Dempsey, Hope Solo, Shannon Box, Marco Echeverry, Linda Hamilton, and Essie Baharmist. All great players, great people in the sport. Love to see it. I just wanted to make sure they were recognized on our podcast as well. Also, apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name. (laughs) Echeverry, good to see him, man. You knew Dempsey was a lock. Uh, Hope, Hope Solo, Solo good well. to see her in. Yeah. There's a real chance she could have been shunned for some reason. Yeah, who knew? But you Pick know, one. aside from that, she should have been a lock as well. Yeah. So good stuff. And uh, that's enough for the national team. Uh, let's get back into MLS a little bit. Uh, news came out today that in this offseason, well, the slow transfer window for the rest of the world but the uh, off-season transfer window the primary for mls teams mls had the fifth most revenue in and out of any of the leagues in the world on that and actually made seven million dollars in profit off of over 68 million in actual revenues changing hands they didn't take it in the shorts that's what happens when you get academies built up and they make a focus on young players they're selling them they're competing in the world marketplace been waiting for it for a long time and it's happening now and uh, talking about those transfers we got sean campbell here to bring us up to date with what happened this week in mls transfers all right well this week in mls transfers we're gonna start off with confirming a rumor that we had last week kevin paredes ends up going to wolfsburg we had talked about that official fee is 7.3 million with some performance and based incentives to come along with that and a sell-on fee that we don't know fully what happened with that we don't know the the, i didn't see a number on that one but what's important is to piggyback off of that dc united then goes out and gets brad smith from the sounders for 750k 10 percent of what they got from paredes they spent on brad smith to replace that spot and they get a 10 percent sell-on fee if they were to sell him outside of the mls so immediately they move someone out and bring someone right back in on the cheap, big, good, big move from DC United. Also, it, it was. It's a very good pickup for DC United to replace Paredes. They had a need for an attacking uh, uh, defensive back. They got one. Huge move for Seattle. If they changed their formation, Smith might not have started. They get seven hundred fifty thousand k in, ta- in gam for him. He also clears six hundred thousand K off the salary cap. 
they are, it was also an international slot that he was taking. That cleared that. Seattle turned around and gave that away for 250000 K in GAM. So essentially, you add all those figures up, that's $1.6 million that Seattle picked up in uh, general allocation money and freedom in the roster place for a guy that might not even start for him this season. How do they keep doing it? I I wish I could tell you. I wish I had the magic touch over there in that Seattle front office, but good move for both squads and I I would I can't wait to see how it works out for Brad over there in in DC and we'll see what happens in Seattle. They're just going to keep being Seattle. What is it we've said there's like a baker's dozen of people who know how to how to work these roster rules and half of them work in Seattle? <laughs> yeah. Or or now work for somebody else when they learned it in Seattle. And none of them work in Inter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of them does work in Inter. That's why they had a good offseason. Yeah, that's why they fixed Inter all Miami. their problems. Yeah. Well, now Chris they Anderson, do. Now they do. After everything fell apart and they ruined it all, they went out and got a Seattle guy. Funny how things change. Interesting week. I'm going to jump you around here on your list, Sean. Uh, DC United loses Paredes, and they lost Areola to FC Dallas. They recovered a bit of that. Don't know what they're going to do about Areola. But what's happening with FC Dallas? They picked up Areola and they did another pickup of a good talent uh, this week as well, didn't they? Oh, yeah. They they definitely definitely got an absolute great player when they picked up Alan Velasco for about $7 million after incentives are included. But it definitely seems like FC Dallas is finally putting money into their first team. And you have to wonder... Is this what they were working towards? Were they trying to sell on young kids to make a bunch of money to then go get, just buy a good team? Or are they trying to bring some legitimacy back to the fact that their team actually is a good team because they've seen a drop in academy players coming into their, into their system? From what I'm hearing, there is a drop. They've uh, pretty much drained their system of the top talent, so they're in that slough period where they've got to refill with younger players, so they don't have anybody to replace. Velasco's a very good talent. Uh, let's see how it happens. There's been some good signings on paper from SC Dallas in the past that never played out on the field. Let's see how he works, but Velasco's a talent. Him and Areola in MLS, they've been really bad in attack. This should help. Of course, Areola's not that great at putting the ball in the net. Still got to find that. Pepe's not there. Francisco Hara has not done that for them. Let's see if Velasco they can. Do or they do still have Ferreira. They do. And now he's a DP. Maybe it lays on him. He's not a front striker. But with the talent like that, you just keep the ball moving. Just open up spots and somebody slots it in. It's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, it's definitely still... It's going to be interesting to see what FC Dallas puts on the field this year because they're shaping up to look like... They're they're not it, the battle of Texas is no longer going to be the battle for the bottom anymore. I'm sad to see that phrase go, but we'll see once this once the season actually starts for sure. Um, keeping it in Texas, though, we also have a signing from Austin FC. They signed Damian Lass, who they well, they got his homegrown rights. So now he's their player, but he's still playing with Fulham's youth. They bought him from the fire. 
and it's they end up swapping second round picks and some conditional fees around there. But uh, he's going to be brought in so that he can back up Stuver there in the in the goal, and hopefully this can fix some of their their woes back there on on days that Stuver can't play. Interesting move by the Fire, considering Selena is clearly their number one now, being so young as a goalkeeper. But rumors abound of him leaving soon to Europe. So interesting them trading off a young goalkeeper. See how that works. Moving a little bit along, we've got uh, a signing up in Philadelphia. They signed Mikhail Ure from Brondby for $2.8 million in transfer fees. They brought him in to replace Jabilka, who went to aforementioned fire. And interesting thing to note, he was the player of the year and won the Golden Boot in the Danish League last year. And this is also the same club that gave Nashville SC their almost Golden Boot winner, Hani Mukhtar. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out for them. I think it's a good replacement, and it's. I think we're going to see the Union keep doing Union things next year for sure. Another deep playoff run and for them. Union's very excited to get him, too. Who we got next? Let's see. Up next, we've got a couple more transfers out of the MLS. We've got George Bello, U.S. men's national team, signing with Armenia Bielefeld. And he's signed for a reported $2 million signing fee plus 25% sell-on fee. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is a Bundesliga squad, correct? I believe so. Uh, recent uh, promotion. Uh, unfortunately, I'm just not up on where they are in the standings. Uh, kind of seemed like George Bello needed a little more seasoning. Sounded like he thought he did too, but they like the fit here. Because uh, there was a lot of discussions about him leaving, and he was hesitant from what I hear, but he liked what they're playing for him, so he's going. It seems like the MLS clubs are more and more nowadays trying to convince these kids to move on a little bit younger so they can make that money, and then buy something to put in their in their system and hope that works. But we'll see how it works out for him. Hopefully he he doesn't succumb to the, you know, get over there, only play a few games, and then not start anymore. Well, I'm hoping that doesn't happen because Armenia Bielefeld is, uh, they are low in, in the Bundesliga standings, but not so low that they are risking relegation at the moment. So I think they're hoping to stave off relegation. So a player like George Bello, I think, is... Uh, they're trying to they're trying to get players to stave off relegation. So you're saying that Ricardo Pepe's in a lot more danger of being a Bundesliga two or a two Bundesliga player than George Bello. That's what it's looking like, but it, actually, it's fairly close. Well, hopefully, they can both stay up because I the more the more talent we have for our national team starting in the top five leagues in Europe the better our team's going to end up being. But they have to be in form and be playing. Here's hoping for George Bello. I would say that it's best for our national team if we have players that are just starting in any league, <laughs> to be quite honest. That is also very, very true. Yeah, that's certainly valid. <laughs> like, even at this point, it looks like my boy Busio is not starting much for Venezia, and they're just, they had an absolute fire sale over this window. We don't have time to go over that, but I, I I hope and pray that the boy can actually get some more starting time and maybe crack that roster again. He could be tired, too. He's played a lot of soccer in a row in a while. He could just be leggy. 
That could be it too. We'll have to, hopefully that's all it is. Hopefully. And that can affect your performance, so it could be both. They Oh, for it sure. It might be hard to separate that. And that's kind of part of the reason why they didn't start Pepe the last game uh, against Canada, or the, even the first game. They didn't start Pepe because, you know, he's been having a hard run of form and maybe he's just been running a lot. Who knows? He just turned 19, just changed cultures and moved away from home. He's been living at home up until now. He's got a lot on his plate. Sometimes it's sometimes we have to remind ourselves these players are not robots. And it and is some quite of a them. thing to uproot. <laughs> it's quite a thing to uproot an eighteen-year-old from El Paso and then ship them off to Germany <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> this is this is very true. Um, so it's not even just the fact that they're not robots because we have to recognize that at every point in time these are actual people. But a lot of these people getting moved are literal children being moved to other countries and having these giant responsibilities thrust upon them. Most of them aren't legal to drink in the U.S. They're legal to drink where they go, just not here. Yeah, maybe that (laughs) has something to do with their form. (laughs) Although, to be fair, I mean, like, obviously I would never do any such thing as drink underage, but... um. Drinking laws has never has never changed anyone's mind about drinking. <laughs> well, moving along from from the beer to the, the <laughs> from the beer to back to transfers, <laughs> we've got a couple more for you. Um, the Barco loan to River Plate has been confirmed. I couldn't find a, a number on that one. So Dursky signing at Charlotte has been confirmed. Um, Rumor has it, and by rumor I mean it's basically confirmed at this point, that Matt Turner has agreed to a verbal agreement with Arsenal to sign in the summer transfer window after their season's done. But I've seen those fall through multiple times being a Tottenham fan. Won't hold on yeah, to that Especially one. with Arsenal. Oh yeah. yeah, won't hold on to that one too much. And then last but not least, and by this I mean actually least because it's a cronky to cronky deal, Austin Trustee leaves the Rapids and goes to Arsenal but they loaned him back to the Rapids until the summer transfer window where he'll be signed for sure. Um, and the rap- and the big thing to take away from this is not the fact that Kroenke's basically playing with chess pieces amongst his clubs at this point, but the Rapids system is starting to look pretty strong too with the young people that they've actually shipped out to big clubs this year, this year, this window alone, with Sam Vines and Cole Bassett both being moved out to top-tier clubs over in Europe. It's uh, what uh, pundits have talked about forever. It's proof of concept. Once MLS starts selling and once the players excel, then there's more trust in them. And they're pretty much for the talent that's going overseas. It's coming at a discount. So, yeah, some of this young American and Canadian uh, talent, you could say it's being exploited. But you're seeing big transfer fees on some of them so we'll see how long the the wave rides i think there's more and better coming up after all these kids but then again we thought that too and then we lost a whole generation breck shea where did you go enter miami i'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, keep an eye on Saversky and charlotte uh, i've heard some rumors that might be a very good pickup for them we'll see interesting roster build in charlotte they could be really good, or they could fall to pieces. 
I'm going to keep a close eye on that. So what you're saying is they could either be the Vegas Golden Knights or they could be the Seattle Kraken. Or FC Cincinnati. <laughs> oh, and no one ever wants to be FC Cincinnati. Yeah, that's a good place to end this. Uh, oh, Mason, you had one other thing you wanted to throw into the day show, didn't you? Yes. So we've talked quite a bit about the NWSL over the last couple of months. Um, one thing that came down a couple of days ago, the NWSL Players Association, um, they the, have ratified the league's first CBA, the first collective bargaining agreement. Um, from I'm, go, I'm basing this off an article in The Athletic. Um, at the time of writing, they, it is still subject to approval by the NWSL's Board of Governors. But as far as I know, what really has happened is that terms have been agreed and what's waiting to be ratified are the, is the finalization of language in the contract. This is basically done. Um, it's a five-year deal. Big thing that this avoids is a strike, a work stoppage um, from the NWSL players. A um, couple other big things that they get is um, an increase to the minimum salary from $25,000 up to, or excuse me, uh, from $22,000 up to $35,000 for the minimum salary. And um, also an introduction of free agency, which I didn't even know that that wasn't available in the NWSL, but that has been stipulated in the CBA that starts next year for unrestricted free agency and then restricted free agency starts in 2024. But there's other big stuff like um, an expansion of uh, necessary medical staff. There's lots of big stuff in here. It's a big win for uh, for uh, NWSL players. And it's good to hear. The talent on the field is been considered the best in the world. But the way this league's been run lately has been a joke compared to what's going on over in Europe. So it's good to see that they're trying to step up and match the two. Uh, because they were in danger of losing all the players to Europe eventually if it kept up the way it was. So good to hear. Yeah, it needs to happen. Tragically, really common the way that women's sports are treated in North America as only secondary to men's sports and otherwise not of interest, which is patently false. Just simply untrue. Look at the women's national team. <laughs> exactly. And women's sports in the U.S. is the bellwether for the rest of the world. So if it's second class here, what class is it the rest of the world? Something else to think about. But that is that's the big like quick hits from that CBA. Um, but yeah, I just good news. Uh, big news for the players. Um, big win for labor. I like to see it. All right. You guys got anything else to add this week? Nope. That does it from the soccer podcast cave. All I got to say is go, go USA. <laughs> got to beat Honduras. Have to You feel a whole lot better. Be in a lot better shape. And Mexico beats Panama, and we'd be really in good shape heading into the final window and have to considering the, what the games are going to be. But that'll wrap it up this week. I'm your host, Mike Turner. I'm your producer, Mason. And I'm your cave-dwelling podcasting hooligan, Sean Gamble. And we are the Soccer Capital Podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>